I love talking books, you guys. I know. It's so fun. This yeah. is what teachers do after yeah. all. Right? How close did we come to our two minutes each? Oh, we did terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. way too long. That's okay. We have to shift that part of the profile. No, absolutely. <laughs> Welcome to Hallway Conversations. We're a trio of educators who have plenty of questions about teaching and learning and school culture, and we believe in the value of collaboration and reflection as we seek to keep growing as teachers. So this podcast is our place for thinking out loud together about issues in education and why they might matter to Christian educators. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hallway Conversations. My name is Matt Beamers. I'm Abby DeGroat. And I'm Dave Mulder. As always, we want to thank you for allowing the three of us to be here with you. And we want to thank you for joining us in the hallway this week. Each week, one of us brings a question or topic, and we try to think creatively around it in the context of teaching Christianly. We're good friends who love each other, and we love engaging each other in conversation about our practice. And our deep hope is that you are enriched and encouraged in your own work, and maybe even in your everyday walking around life. Well, we have a long list of topics we want to talk about. We want to know what hallway conversations you would like to hear. So if you have ideas or questions or feed, feedback about this podcast, or simply want to share what hallway conversations you're having, please email us at hallwayconvospod at gmail.com. That's hallwayconvospod at gmail.com. Well, first off, we want to say congratulations to our friends in Canada as you recently finished up your school year. It took forever. Well done, good and faithful servants. What a mission. We hope that this summer provides you with some emotional, spiritual, and physical rest. And in saying that, I also hope this summer allows you to play and delight in God's creation. Today on our podcast, we want to try something different. We know that many of you read over the summer, and so we decided to wait until our Canadian friends were done to talk about a few of our favorite books. We are going to do this a few times over the summer, and our hope is that one of these books might resonate with you. You might know that we are big into protocols, so we actually sort of invented <laughs> one up, and we're calling it 2 by 2 by 2 which actually isn't a great name, but it's the best we got in the beginning of July. That's right. But here's how it's going to work. We are each allowed to bring two books and mention two things about the book, and you only get two minutes to address the book, which we all know is going to be harder for me than anyone else in this room. I have to see that happen. Abby has no confidence. Less, Less time is fine, but more time means that the other two people in the room will probably make booing or hissing noises, which is not good for anyone. We're going to be thrilled things at you, Matthew. All right. So in that context, Abby, I'm going to... Or Dave, sorry, I just got an evil glare from Abby. Dave, I'm going to turn it over to you. (laughs) Sure. And why don't you share one of your books to start? All right. So one of the books that I brought, and I read this one for the first time uh, as part of a professional learning community uh, with other professors here at this institution. The the book is called Small Teaching. It's by James Lang. I should just say, too, we'll put all the books that we're mentioning here in the show notes. So if you want to go back, you'll have uh, easy access to them that way. Um, And small teaching, the the main idea of this book is kind of like small ball in baseball, right? Like so often we think in baseball you're going to be swinging for the fences every time. you got to hit a home run. And his argument is, yeah, actually most of the time you just need a base hit. And the analogy for teachers being, um, yeah, if you're trying to reimagine your teaching practice every semester, every year, um, that's, a, that's an awful lot of work. What if there's smaller things that you could do um, next week where it's a base hit kind of a thing, not a, not a home run maybe. Um, and so the whole book is research-based strategies for things you could do to tweak your teaching practice. That's, that's the basic premise of it. Um, so, okay, my two things, my two key things about the book. Number one... Um, there's a neuroscience 
basis for all of the suggestions that uh, he brings up in this book. He's applying the science of how people learn and um, the way that he structures it, he introduces it. So like in theory, here's what's going on in people's brains. And then here's some ideas for how you can leverage that mm -hmm. uh, as a teaching technique. And then he does a little recap at the end. Um, and so even if it's a book you've read before and you're like, oh man, I just need to go back and revisit. Um, you know, th th there's like a summary for each mm -hmm. chapter that it gives. And I know, Abby, you read this lecture. I have, so, I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Okay, so that's that's the one thing I'll do, knowing that there's a neuroscience background. The other thing I figured I would tell you just for this one, I'll give you an example. There's nine basic strategies he goes through in the book. Um, one of them is retrieving. And the idea here is that we want to actually help students remember the things that they, that they have had the opportunity to learn. And so how do you do that? Well, you got to have them practice retrieval, have them practice ways of, hey, remember what we learned before. And a couple of the ways that he suggests doing that, you could start with an opening question. Like, before we start, can anyone remind me what we talked about in class on Monday? Or what were we working on in class last week, right? Uh, the, you know, to call back that way. And even just the act of trying to remember, he, he goes through the neuroscience for this, it helps you actually remember it better after trying to remember things, right? That's kind of fascinating to me. Um, similarly, you could end with a closing question. So at the end of class, so what are the three most important things you need to remember mm -hmm. from today's lesson? And just like have them right then and there, write them down or, or something like that. And then he gives some other suggestions for things that you could do kind of inter, intermittently. So um, having students do a reading check or um, using frequent quizzing. And I know mm -hmm. pop quizzes mm -hmm. have fallen out of favor, so maybe don't grade these things, but mm -hmm. just like make that a normal rhythm in your class that you're mm -hmm. going to quiz. Um, spacing out due dates. That seems like a really small thing, but to um, not have everything due all at once, but uh, mm -hmm. for a particular project, maybe have some spaced out due dates and have some built-in reflection points along with it. Mm -hmm. right? So anyway, I found this book very helpful. It's very practical. Um, and yeah, there's nine different strategies and it's worth checking it out. Right. I use so many of them. Yeah. Yeah. After reading that book. Yeah. Once you get into it, it just kind of opens your eyes a little bit to the possibilities. Immediately applicable. Nice. How about you, Matt? You yeah. So the book I picked is in some senses non-educational. I mean, all books are educational, but but it's the kind of book that I find myself reading in the summer. So this is Barbara Brown Taylor, An Altar in the World, A Geography of Faith. And um, so I'm really big or like I really have come to appreciate, um, especially probably in the last eight or 10 years, this idea of formational practices, mm -hmm. um, this idea that what do you and, you know, that started with um, Jamie Smith's book, Desiring the Kingdom, which I've mentioned yeah. quite a few times here, but it's really kind of morphed it from that to like, what are these, what are these practices doing to us? And so um, I was really drawn to this because each of the chapters begins with like the practice of, so um, there, and there's all these different practices, but one of the fundamental questions that um, kind of comes from, from Taylor's book is this idea of like, how do we meet God outside of the church building? So, oh, yeah. um, you know, I, the way I was raised, I was always taught that God reveals himself through scripture and creation mm -hmm. like those are his are his two bit two books and and i i think i learned to do that you know in creation sort of in the big things so like living in the pacific northwest right oh like look at mount baker like you know look yeah. how god mm -hmm. or at richmond nature park when our dad would take us there on sunday afternoons or even watching the northern lights at campbell river on vancouver island right god was real and it was tangible but it somehow took me a long time to find God or to see how God reveals himself sort of in, in the mundane or everyday walking around life, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we often now will talk about the sacred in the ordinary. And that was, 
that was really hard for me, partly because I love those big things, but, but it was this idea of like, how do you find God in doing the dishes? Or where is, how do you find, what's the sacredness of giving feedback on student work or picking up garbage in the playground? Like how are, how are those sacred moments? Like, like one of the lines, it's not my line. And a lot of people use it as that, this idea that small things are big things. And I believe that in terms of, mm-hmm. of the sacredness of saying like those small things actually reveal God in, in pretty big ways. So, sure. yeah. um, so the one thing was just this idea of um, the practice of, and one of the, one of the chapters that resonated very deeply with me was this idea of the practice of paying attention. I think one of our callings as friends, as a parent, um, as teachers, it's this idea of paying attention to kids, um, whether it's how they're feeling, um, what's the look on their face, paying attention to using their names, a haircut, mm-hmm. all those little things mm-hmm. that you think, man, those are like, there's there's sacredness in all those things, and to name those things to kids. And so Taylor, for me, was was a reminder for me of like, pay, pay attention in a classroom, pay attention to the to the you know what we might call the you know the the hidden curriculum almost yeah. Of, yeah. of you know the kids are walking into your class every day what do you need to notice about them so that was one thing and the second part that became a really big part of my life was this practice of pronouncing blessings so again the way I was raised sort of the only person that uh, or the only example I had of blessing was it was the pastor like the pastor was oh, yeah. sort of the only person mm-hmm. and the pastor was the only person who could actually raise their hands and give a right. blessing yeah. uh, for some reason I just thought oh pastors are the only people who can do this and um and then a number of years ago our daughter Emma was born who's actually unbelievably a student in in Abby's class mm-hmm. now but we had a family <laughs> a family visit an elder from our church who was also a um an elder at the time his name was Hans and he came for a visit and it was actually a beautiful visit. And, and for some reason, right at the end, and I don't know why, because this is very unlike me, I asked Hans, can you, can you lay your hands on Emma and bless her? And she, you know, she was literally seven or eight pounds. She had just been born. And, and he did that. And for some reason, that made such a profound, with all due respect to Hans, I don't remember anything else about that visit. But <laughs> right. I remember that. And when I read Taylor's oh. book, for some reason, I made a connection between um, what this, like, the importance of blessing, like literally blessing others, mm. and enhance blessing Emma in that moment. And it, it's sort of after I read this book, I actually started trying to incorporate this in, into my into my practices. And so, um, so now we use the number six blessing. It started just in our family. We do it at the end of devotions. Mm-hmm. I'll do it in the middle of the day, or our kids are out to drive somewhere, or they're just having a bad day, and it's sort of this. Yeah, I just want to, you just, you need to be blessed. I want you to receive God's blessing and we'll lay our hands on each other and bless each other. And then it just sort of morphed from there. I started doing it at the end of every chapel um, at the last school I was at. I'd have the kids stand up and put their hands up and, um, and I would bless them and I'd ask them to pass the peace of Christ to each other. And then I started doing it at the, on Friday afternoons and we'd gather as a faculty and I'd bless them and we'd pass the peace of Christ. And now even as a, Professor here on Friday afternoons. Mm-hmm. It's before the kids scatter for the weekend. I bless I bless them and and it's this idea of hey we gather together as a family or as a class or whatever and before we scatter let's bless each other and send send each other on the way. So I guess 
I guess Brown remind me of, of the importance that, that before we go our separate ways, let's let's know that we're blessed by God and be a blessing to each other. So those are those are my two those are my two things. Thanks for sharing that. Uh-huh. Well, my first book goes really well with that actually, uh, the idea of formational practices, and um, so it's on Christian teaching, practicing faith in the classroom, and it's by David Smith, um, who is a professor at Calvin University, and um, my first exposure to this book, I think, too, was a professional study that we did yeah, with faculty yeah. here at Dort. Mm-hmm. And um, just was super formational for me in the way that David Smith introduced looking at Christian teaching not only through the lens of um, content and curriculum, but through the lens of pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the two things that he argues in this book are, well, the first of all, so my first thing is that ped- pedagogical choices have, carry at least as much weight Hmm. Um, informing our students as curricular choices do. And so as a Christian teacher, I don't think I had ever fully heard that message or Hmm. at least absorbed and practiced Mm -hmm. that idea that the way that I was teaching Hmm. my, what I chose to open with and how I ran a classroom were forming my students. Yes. Yes. You know, Mm. you talk about formational practices. Mm. Those things are powerful formative experiences for students. And um, I've heard Smith speak several times. One of the examples, the more profound examples I've heard him use that I don't think is in the book, but that I've heard him use that um, in a speech is um, he asked the question, what are students in a Bible class, for example, at a Christian high school? What ideas are they absorbing when he observed a class where the teacher was teaching about the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are the meek. Um, And a vast majority of students on their devices were surfing the internet. Right, they had Amazon up. And so he asks, what kind of formation is happening Mm -hmm. in that classroom? Which was just a powerful eye-opening moment for me as a teacher in thinking about my pedagogical choices. So that's kind of the first half of the book as he makes this argument that pedagogy is is formative. And then in the second half, he kind of leads the way forward with, okay, so what does that mean? How can we reimagine and see anew um, our important educational practices and, and leads us through that as Christian teachers? So those are my two things. And I've just found this text to be um, really important in my own practice and I think also as I teach education majors here Mm. it also allows me a way to talk to them about the choices they're making and whether or not they're treating Mm. their students as the image bearers that we Mm. believe that they are so does our does what we say we believe about students match up with what we are doing Yeah, and, that, and that maybe that's one definition of integrity, right? Of mm-hmm. teaching with in- integrity to our to our practices and our and our vision sort of mm-hmm. align, right? Is this is what we say we're on about? Here's right. here's the evidence. But I, I remember when I read that book, it was a little bit unsettling for me yeah. to be honest. Yeah. It, Same. It forced me to like I think Smith forced at least forced me to ask questions that I, I would I would say are, are courageous questions mm-hmm. to ask. Like it takes courage mm-hmm. 
to ask questions. And I, and I think, at least for myself, I, I sometimes want to avoid those questions because mm -hmm. you have right. an inkling. <laughs> you have this inkling of what the answer is. You know, like this whole, if you don't want to know the answer, don't ask the question. And I think Smith, Smith's book helped me with that a bit. Like, like if the question isn't whether we're forming people, like, like it, they are, education is formation. Right. So yeah, who are we, how, who are we forming or how are they being mm -hmm. formed? So so glad you brought that one out. Mm -hmm. I think it's such yeah. an important book for all of our listeners. If you're a Christian and you're a teacher and you haven't yeah. read this book, you right. owe it to yourself to pick you it should. up. Yeah, yeah. totally. It, it will, it will push you, but it will encourage you. It I will. think it will do both, mm -hmm. which, which is what good books do. I think it is. And I like, I like that it's the idea of restoring our practice, right? Yeah. It's just about reimagining yeah. and not just about like implement totally. these five things, yeah. right. right? But it's yeah. a way of thinking. Which that I really appreciate. Yeah, and and I think a little bit at a time, right? Like yeah. you alluded to yeah. at the beginning, it's not like you have to recreate it. Like, no. what's the one little thing you can do today? Yeah. What's the one little thing you can you can do tomorrow? And just sort totally. of, yeah, just make your do it slowly for That's sure. Good. All right, so my second book kind of piggybacks on my first, um, in that um, it's a way to kind of take that idea that David Smith has about pedagogy and see what it looks like um, to marry that with a discipline. So yeah. the discipline that I teach most often and is English, right? I'm a former high school English teacher. I teach English methods to undergrads here. And so the book that I brought was Right Beside Them by Penny Kittle. And it really argues um, that teachers of writing, this is this book specifically to writing, um, should be also themselves writers mm. which mm. i fully admit that as a former teacher of writing i did not always practice sure and didn't really see a need mm. for and she mm. has convinced me otherwise mm -hmm. um and her basic argument is that um it, it allows us a knowledge of working inside the craft that we can then that we can't have if we're not doing it and sure. so as an example you would never expect a music teacher not to be playing music mm, or a PE right. teacher not to be exercising, right? right. Yeah. And so in the same way, why would you not expect a teacher of writing to also be practicing that discipline mm. um, themselves, themselves? And so this fall, I actually implemented as I taught this book to my undergrad students, we wrote together and I wrote with them. Oh, yeah. And it was one of, speaking of formative practices, it was one of the most formational things I've ever done wow. as a teacher like with my students. And so we would start every class period that we studied this book with a, with a prompt or a mentor text and we would write and then we would share. Mm -hmm. And I learned through that experience and also that Kittle talks about um, the experiences of her students as well. This is my second thing. Um, students, especially adolescent students, are craving opportunities to safely um, be authentic and explore big ideas mm -hmm. right and if you can create a classroom where they can do that and teach them how to do it well they will rise to that wow. occasion and i believe that yeah. um with the power of writing and the the power of seeing ideas that you formed on wow. paper i just wow. believe that and again you have to do it well oh, right. that <laughs> that atmosphere doesn't just happen you have to sure. build toward it you have to scaffold it um she has all kinds of ideas about how to do that but it was a really cool experience for me and my students. And I think if you're an English teacher or even, um, you know, if you teach junior high, upper elementary, this book has a lot of promise for the practice of teaching students how to write, which is important in all areas and disciplines. You're right. So those nice. are my two. Oh, that's good. Thanks for Thanks, sure. thanks mm -hmm. for that, Abby. 
Hey, my second book is uh, Leading with a Limp by Dan Allender. And maybe these two things are really one thing, but um, this was a really important book for me because, um, so I'm an Enneagram 3, so I'm just going to name that. Um, and and one, of the, one of the struggles for me um, with that is that I often um, morph into the people, morph into the person that I think others want me to be, like yeah. the performer. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when I became, when I started getting into school leadership, and this was probably true when I was teaching, but when, especially when I got into school leadership, I really, my identity was really bound not in who who uh, God was calling me to be or who how God created me, mm-hmm. but more in, in who I thought others wanted me to be. And so th- this book was sort of, um, yeah, so this belief for me, you know, that, that, um, I'm not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet, that there are times where that, if I'm honest, like even though I knew that to be true, that, that didn't feel like it was sufficient enough. Um, so my identity was often found in, in my performance, and my performance was based on on what I thought I needed, needed to be. And so um, when I first started as a principal, and this probably throughout my whole um, time as a school leader, um, yeah, I, I think you you have an inflated sense of self-importance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the good yeah. things that happen, you you sometimes can take too much credit for, and and sometimes when bad things happen, you also mm-hmm. blame yourself more mm-hmm. more for that. And so, um, but it was this idea that we are going to fall short, and how do we lead? How do we lead out of our, our brokenness um, to be more my authentic self? I guess, and so. Um, in the end, it was one of the things that Allender taught me. Taught me is, hey, I can't fool myself. I can't mm-hmm. fool others. I can't. I can't fool God. And it's maybe actually when we lead out of who we are, um, when we allow God to our identity be found in God, that maybe that's actually what gives us authority, and people mm-hmm. follow that mm-hmm. person um, because people can spot um, a fake a mile away. So this idea of lead of leading with a limp and. So that was one thing for me. It was really a release, a release that I am enough, like his grace is sufficient mm-hmm. for me. Sure. And then the second part, I think, was just a chapter from the book um, that he opened with that I'll never forget it. He asked the question, what's the single best word to describe you as a leader? And, and when I started doing this and writing it down, it, I realized that a lot of it was around, you know, you know like uh, they were all very positive words, <laughs> like, oh, I'm an mm-hmm. optimist or... Um, strong vision or yeah. a friend or and he shares a story about he's asked uh, a significant amount of leaders this question and no one ever talks uses words like broken reluctant <laughs> disillusioned and I think when I read that it, it gave me permission again to name the hard things of leadership yeah to say this isn't always so um, this isn't always easy in fact it's actually really really hard a lot of the time mm-hmm. Um, and so when I first got into leadership, maybe my my motives for it weren't pure, um, you know, but but as I think I've grown um, to realize again, right, that it's um, that it's out of our brokenness that we actually are our most effective yeah. as leaders to lead to lead with a limp, maybe rather um, than trumpets blaring and, you know, but to actually, yeah, to lead with that lamp. So. so this is clearly a great book for school leaders to read. Would it be helpful for classroom teachers? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just to empathize with yeah. school leaders or because we all lead in school Yeah, leaders. well, I was going to say, I think every, I think everybody in a school building 
is a leader, whether yeah. we put titles on right. those or not. We all, like, no matter what your role, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if you are listening to this and whatever your role in a school building, that comes with leadership. But, but I think it's brilliant if anybody's, you know, as a parent, mm -hmm. right, to feel yeah. like you always have mm -hmm. to have all the answers. Right. Or if you're serving on, in a volunteer position at a church or, or any form of leadership, um, I, th I think it would become as an, as an, encour as an encouragement, to be yeah. honest. Mm, thank you. Uh, well, my second book, um, I'm, I'm an ed tech guy, as, as you guys know, and I don't know if everybody listening in knows this, right? That's my, my field of expertise. Uh, and so the, the second book I brought, I wanted to talk about tech, but this gets tricky, right? Because so many tech books get out of date right away because technologies are always evolving. It's and the changing. nature. It's the nature yeah. of the field. Yeah. Right? So the book that I'm bringing is called It's Complicated, The Social Lives of Networked Teens. And it's mm -hmm. by Dana Boyd. Um, and it is a book about social media. It's really a, a book about culture more than anything else, I think. And uh, Dana Boyd is a qualitative researcher, a social mm -hmm. scientist, and so she spent a couple years just visiting with high school kids mm -hmm. um, about how they use social media. Mm -hmm. now, she did that in the early 2010s, so the book came out in 2014. So uh, that would be my first thing that I'll bring up. If you read the book, it does feel a little dated because the tech tools she's talking about are Facebook and sure. MySpace. Do you remember MySpace? Space, yeah, right? like, um, it feels like a throwback. Yeah. Right? Uh, but if you would just update those particular platforms for TikTok and Instagram, the book holds yeah. water. It, yeah. it, the, the concepts that she's talking about hold true, I think. Okay. So um, like the short summary, I guess, for the book, knowing that, um, it comes out saying, hey, you guys, the kids are okay, but adults don't understand them. Mm. And you know what? That's no different than it was in previous generations, yeah. actually. The yeah. kids are all right. Yeah. And adults just don't understand them. And so that brings me to the second point. This is really where she goes in the book. Um, she uses the term networked publics is, is mm -hmm. the terminology she uses. And, and kids have always wanted to be in public places away from adults. And so mm -hmm. when I was a kid growing up in the 80s yeah. and 90s, we'd go to the mall or we'd right. go to the movies or right. something. Right? That was our place to go. And be I grew right. up in Iowa, so we went to parking lots. There you go. Right? <laughs> wow. It's wow. called Falco for you local, local listeners. Oh, Rock wow. Valley, Iowa. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so, but that idea, right, that teens want to have their place to be together with their yeah. friends, but they want to be away from yeah. adults. And uh, because the world went and changed on us and parents got really nervous about kids can't be out in public, can't be, it's unsafe, right, yeah. and everyone's upset. And so kids gravitate to social networks, and it's actually a lot of the same stuff that was going on mm -hmm. with me and my idiot friends in the 90s at the right. mall. Right. They're just doing it online instead. Yeah. And I found that to be incredibly encouraging as a parent of teenagers who spend a fair amount of time on yeah. social media today to know, you know what, they're probably fine. Because I think back to the dumb things that I did at the mall, and yeah. none of it, it was harmless. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. just being a goon with, with your friends, right? Being, being goofy. Um, so anyway, I just found the book really uh, compelling and encouraging that way, and I would encourage uh, teachers, parents, uh, to to read it and to grapple with some mm. of the ideas that are in there. Huh. Hmm. It's interesting to think about, Dave, like this uh, this line of, um, you know, are the kids all right? Yeah. And yeah, like my because my initial reaction to that is, um, like on the one hand, I want to believe they're all right, and then and then when I believe that, I feel sometimes oh, like I'm being naive. Right, and, right. Like no, like it's, yeah. you know, like whether it's the the statistics around anxiety or around, mm -hmm. but but mm -hmm. this book is saying, there 
They're the, okay. It's more that society has shifted okay. more than the kids have Interesting. shifted. And, and I think the societal expectations for it's not safe to be out yeah, and around yeah. and stuff, that has been more impactful than the fact that the kids are actually on social media. Yeah. <laughs> That's the argument. No, it's interesting. I mean, somebody once made the observation to me about, like, when you go around in many places, notice empty cul-de-sacs, yeah. right? Like, yeah. just kids are... And kids so aren't outside playing. Kids right? aren't outside playing, and, and so, yeah, maybe we also shouldn't be surprised. We've asked them to not be outside. So, right. So now they're going to be inside. Well, they still need to have this desire to connect. And and they're going to be social, and because we're created to be social beings, after yeah. all. No, I love talking books, you guys. I know. It's so fun. This yeah. is what teachers do, after yeah. all. Right? How close did we come to our two minutes each? Oh, we did terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. way too long. That's okay. We have to shift that part of the profile. No, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Abby was the worst, so let's just be okay. Like, let's just name that. So, Friends, we, we know that your time is valuable, and we want to thank you for joining us today for another Hallway Conversation. And whether it's this day, this week, this month, or this school year, we do hope that the Lord gives you what you stand in need of. We want to thank you for the good, God-delighting work you're doing in your schools and communities. And as you go into this week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace. Amen. Have a good week, everyone. Thank you. This podcast was quite literally dreamed up during one of our actual hallway conversations. Our music is by Ethan Mulder. Hallway Conversations is an independent podcast created and produced by Matt Beamers, Abby DeGroat, and Dave Mulder. Thanks for listening.